out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of Peter and the test tube babies, because I spoke to Derek Ordell, Strangefish Greenin, very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff that happens when you're in a band, a post-punk, or even a punk band. Um, so this is the interview, after a few minutes of casual chat, when I say a few minutes, it went on for ages, we got down to the, um, yes, yeah, just pleasantries, that's what you do in life. Swapping stories and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, we got down to that exciting subject what, that uh, of Dell's early musical kind of influences and that moment of awakening when he thought rock and roll, pop music, that's for me. Dell, tell us what your first musical journey was. Okay, over to you. Almost the same as what you just said there, yeah, but I don't remember the late 60s. I don't remember the early 60s too much. I remember about 1965. I must have been five years old. Uh, I think my dad bought home Hard Day's Night. Would that have been 64, I suppose? Yes. The Beatles' first album. I just remember all the pictures of the Beatles, all with the funny faces on the front cover. Yeah. When I was a baby, when I was a kid. I remember thinking that was funny. So my dad used to buy records all the time. That's what sort of got me into music. And then I suppose uh, 1977, when punk started, I was 17, the perfect age to be at that time. Uh, and... Yeah, so I, I liked all the glam rock stuff. I, I got into sort of metal before punk, but not. I didn't like the progressive stuff. I didn't like uh, Steve Hillage or, or all that sort of Camel or Tangerine Dream. I just sort of like, liked the, the bands that did the sort of three-minute pop songs like Thin Lizzy. Yes. Uh, and Deep Purple did a few and stuff like that. They were they were even on top of the pops and, and on the charts then as well. So I sort of always liked that sort of immediate three-minute yeah. rock song. But obviously, I didn't like the long solos. So when no, punk came along, but it was, it was perfect. It, just, just before, sorry, I was just going to say, my brother, who was into all that, yes, Genesis, but he did have the first, well, not the first, but a, a Black Sabbath compilation and a Deep Purple, I think it was Made in Japan or Fireball, Burn, I think oh, yeah. it was. And and those records, I remember, and Rainbow as well he got. So I quite liked kind of that um power chord rock stuff. So um, Deep Purple, yeah, Smoke on the Water. I, like, I, don't, I never liked the live album. There was always like a 20-minute drum solo on there. Yeah, by, I John, think, by I think, John Lord. I think deep, yeah, Deep Purple. Yeah, they had Child in Time or something. Yes. There was about 10 minutes of him hitting the cymbals. And I just thought, well, get to the point, mate. You know what I mean? I oh, know, with, <laughs> with Ian Gillen sort of, sort of wailing around. Because, yeah, I was just remembering the other day or week, they used to often do an album with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, doesn't they? There was there was a bit of a trend for bands, whoever they were and whatever genre, to do something with the Philharmonic Orchestra. And I think Deep Purple did one like that, but I just liked those. There was one track called Fireball and Burn, which were just like three minutes of sheer kind of thumping rock, which I thought were amazing. I must admit, Rainbow were a bit conceptual for me, but I did quite like them as well. But um, yes, but you all, yes, because timing is everything in music, isn't it? So being there when punk hit was probably quite lucky because I was talking to Richard Strange from the Doctors of Madness and he was like, we were two years too early for punk. We were there and uh, it was kind of happening. It was slowly happening, but we weren't, you know, we were a bit old by 77. We had passed our peak. So, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Timing, definitely. Oh, well, well, I remember going, there used to be a club in Brighton called The Hungry Years and it was a metal club, heavy metal club. 
it wasn't called metal then, it was called sort of heavy rock. But um, yeah, we, they, I used to go up there and I used to wait for the, the little fast songs that I liked to come on to hit the dance floor. And then one night I went up there, it was Steve Hilly's tribute night and there was loads of sort of backwards guitar playing and keyboards and I was sat there bored out of my skull. <laughs> and I decided, I decided to go home because I'd had enough. And as I was sort of waiting at the bus stop, I sort of heard this shouting coming down the road from a basement and I sort of walked along, went downstairs and there was the Piranhas, which was another sort of Brighton punk band at the time, before we started even. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, there was no stage. They were standing on chairs. They were swearing their heads off. They were out of tune and every song was about a minute and a half and I just thought, this is it. I found my Nirvana. Yeah, well, not Nirvana, but <laughs> I found oh, this is what I oh, this is great, and I started going to all their gigs, and that gave me the idea. I was fiddling around with the guitar at the time, and it gave me and Peter the idea to you know, we we don't have to be we don't have to be Eric Clapton or or um you know John Bonham or Richie whatever Black Bob Dildo. <laughs> we don't yes, I don't we don't, even we, don't have, we, we we could actually like go and write a one and a half minute song out of tune. Why not? Let's that, do absolutely. it. Yeah, that's how the band started, really. Yes, your your Frampton come live, yeah, which everyone seemed to own. You didn't need to. Yeah, Frampton comes alive. I think Peter might have had that one, but was, where he does where he does he sings that thing down the tube. Oh, the tube. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And my brother. Whatever it's called. I think everyone, every household had Frampton come live, which um, was good. And they had the hair, you know, the blow dried blonde hair. It's all of chest hair, the whole lot. So when so oh, yeah. so then you went home and you thought. We're going to form a band. Yeah, so we started. Well, we started getting into the punk scene and going to anything punk that was on. There wasn't a lot around at that time, you know. Most of it was London-based, so not a lot of bands came to Brighton. I think the Stranglers were one of the first. But I think they were from Guildford anyway, in the south. Um, I remember one night me and Peter went to see the Stranglers and they'd cancelled and they put Shaking Stevens on instead. So we nearly got beaten up by a load of teddy boys. So oh, yes. Peter wrote Peter wrote a song about that. <laughs> so yeah, we um we uh we yeah, we started to go to all the punk punk gigs and we thought, well, you know, we can some of the bands were awful and we thought, God, we can do better than this, come up with funnier lyrics and, you know, come up with, you know, some more interesting tunes. So we rehearsed in Peter's dad's garage. And I managed to blag our way on through a few sort of festivals as the first band on. Worked our way up the bill. And that's that, that was how it all began, really. Which was quite quick, because most bands, I'd sort of realised, have that kind of um, a bit of a five-year narrative where they get together and make a bit of a sound from that period. And, and, and it's kind of a John Peel play and a John Peel session that gives them that, oh, blimey, we can do an album and get more dates around the country because there was kind of a whole network of venues that every town seemed to have an indie night or a punk night or an alternative night on a Monday or Tuesday, which kind of is helpful because then it means you kind of can play in front of people who don't personally know you, you know, like most people, you know, most bands, you know, you, you play in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you. But to go to another city or town and play in front of strangers who know your stuff is quite, it kind of makes it kind of worthwhile continuing. And you got a John Peel session quite quickly, didn't you? Yes, that's what I was going to mention next, actually, because you mentioned John Peel before. Um, so the Piranhas got a job. Well, there was, before, there was an album of local bands. It was called Atrix 78, and it was from Atrix Records, which was a little shop, independent record shop in Brighton. And a guy called Rick Blair was putting the album together, and he was looking for bands to, to get on it. Uh, we just happened to be supporting another band called Nicky and the Dots that night, and he was there. And we just, we were terrible. We went on stage. We only had three or four songs. We did every one twice. And the the guy, Rick, who was running the label, thought it was so funny. He gave us a track on the compilation album. 
So we were on that with the Piranhas and a few other bands from the Brighton scene. And then John Peel sort of hooked up onto the Piranhas as well. And he really loved that Voltage 78 album. He was playing it every night. And um, they, he came down to see the Piranhas before he gave them a session. Peter saw him in the toilet in the local pub and said, how about a session for us then? And that's how we got our John Peel session. Fantastic. So, um, yeah, so we'd, we'd actually only been, we'd only been going there. Well, we have been going for a while in our heads, but we'd only done about two, two gigs when we got offered that. Yes. So we did about, so we did about two gigs. We got, we quickly went in the studio, which wasn't really a studio. It's someone's front room with a four, five, four track or something. Uh, recorded the stuff. The album came out. Did the John Peel session and then got a record deal. So it all sort of turned around really quickly for us. It was like, uh, I would say, all within six months. Maybe. Yes, which was quite, which was quite amazing because, you know, you know, I mentioned earlier about David Bowie, and I sort of realised that actually he spent most of the sixties making some pretty awful records, but sort of and failing miserably on all of them, really. And then, you know, it took him a long time before he sort of started to sort of get it together. But you obviously got it together very quickly. Um, it was fast track to stardom, really, wasn't it? Well, we 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 only sort of did it so we could get him for free and get free booze, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but it ended up sort of yeah, we ended up doing our first single, getting a you know, after the John Peel session, getting a single and then an album. And, and here we are, 42 years later, stuck with it. Yes, you thought <laughs> the, career, the career's teacher. Anyway, so look, when you went and did it, did you, because you did four songs, didn't you? Moped Lads, Beat Up the Mods, Elvis is Dead and Maniac. I mean, yes. I mean, were they, they must have been kind of still quite, I was going to sort of have a baking metaphor. They must have been still slightly warm. As in, just just literally done. You know, you couldn't have you know had much time to play them and rehearse them. No, no, there was. I mean, like I said, we we only had four songs when we did our first gig, and I think we had to write about another two or three just to sort of have enough to do a full repertoire. Yes, and uh, yeah, so so some of those songs, a couple of those songs were probably just written actually. Yes, just to sort of yeah, so. But it's quite exciting at that time when you're first, you know, you're writing your first set. You know, anything that comes, you know, you just use anything that comes along, really. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so, the, yeah, they were pretty fresh, fresh out of the oven. Fresh out of the <laughs> oven, yeah, sticking with a bit. Yeah, so oven. what was it like with going to Maida Vale and working? You you had um, Mike Robinson rather than Dale Griffiths from Not the Hoople fame. I wondered what it was like with you turning up. Because there was you, Peter, Chris and Nick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, so you know more about it than me. <laughs> we had Mike Robbins. Yeah, Mike I think Rob um, John Peel's assistant, John uh, Sparrow, or John Walters. John Walters was there. Yeah, we didn't actually meet John. Uh, he didn't come to the session, but yeah, I remember going up. To, well, I, I don't I haven't got a great memory of it because it's so long ago. It's nineteen seventy nine, was it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite a long time ago. So I don't remember much about it. But we couldn't hardly play. I think it was. Our first time in a proper studio, maybe. Excellent. Uh, so we didn't even know, you know, first time we'd ever worn headphones or, or you know, <laughs> heard ourselves back through the <laughs> back through the uh, through a desk or anything. So yeah, we we're all pretty naive, really. So it probably sounds that way, but um, so yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. Really, we just let the producer take over and tell us what to do and what to play. Excellent. And, uh, hmm. and you must Not have been what to play. What but you must have been quite amazed when you heard the results from such a professional sort of, um, yeah, setup. Yeah, well, yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, we, we um, I remember being excited when it was 
first going to be broadcast, listening at home to the transistor radio under the pillow, thinking I'm on the radio, I'm on the radio, you know. Uh, we thought that we thought that was it. We that would we just had this, and then we go back to our crap jobs and and um, but then yeah, then we got the single deal, and then we got an album deal. So and before yeah, you know so, it, yeah, because because the eighties period was quite interesting. We'd had the Falkland crisis, all that was still happening, I think, and then you you know it's a huge amount of unemployment. So a lot of people I've interviewed, especially there in the early eighties, there wasn't a lot of other kind of options going on in life. It wasn't like oh yes music you know it's either this or music it was more like is music and being on the dole really so it kind of focused people thinking well I want to do this for a few years and you know often what what seemed to be like a little bit of a hobby sort of turned into a three or four year job almost even though at the end of it people still didn't have much money but at least they did something quite exciting so when you were bringing out or starting to work on that next or the first album Pissed and Pride you must have, was what happened between the John Peel session and and that particular release? Yeah, right. So we, um, yeah, it's right what you say about at that time nobody, there was no nobody had any jobs. I think I was the only one who got a job out of the band really, and so I was the only one who sort of bought an amp and then bought bought myself sort of a half decent guitar. But then I left the job, went after the the record took off to go on tour. But um, yeah, there wasn't. That's why so much great music came out of that time period, because people had nothing to do apart from concentrate on trying to write songs and make great music. You know, you couldn't do that nowadays because you wouldn't be able to pay the mortgage or, the, or survive or buy anything to eat on the. You know, because there's not a lot of money in the music business, and there's so many people trying to do it. Yeah. But um, the, the the latter part of your question was what happened in between. Um, yeah, so I think we did a we did a we sort of said yes to everything at that time. We were just like lucky to do anything, you know, keep ourselves busy. So we did a couple of compilation albums. Um, we signed that single deal and did Band from the Pubs, our first single, uh, with um, two tracks on the B-side. Then we were writing, and then we did our second single, Run Like Hell. So there was two tracks on that. So when it came to doing when you know, No Future, that was the label, when they decided, right, it's time to do an album, we suddenly thought, well, we've already recorded all our songs and released them all, everything from the set. You know, there's only a couple left. So we thought it's a bit stupid going in and just recording them again. What's the point of that? So that's why the first album was a live album. We just, instead of going into the studio, we hired a mobile, a mobile um, recording desk and van and everything and stuck it outside a couple of gigs and recorded the whole set and then put that out as the first album. Yes, and that... Pissed and proud because you do. I mean, you know, because because no one really sort of un, kind of has that plan that this is going to happen. So no one really can sit down and go, "We'll do this and then we'll do this." It is almost all by chance and luck. I mean, did you because you were getting sort of put on compilations with different kind of like the oi world as well as the punk world? Did you just kind of say you said you just said yes to everything? Was that kind of looking back it's, on it's, it? Yeah, we more or less said yes to everything. I mean. Um, with the, the Oi album thing, we didn't know it was going to be called Oi the album. We just, uh, there was a guy called Gary Bushaw, I don't know if you're aware of him. Yeah. He was, yeah, he, he, he was putting the album together. He was a set writer for sound. And uh, he was just interested in sort of, after the Pistols and Clash and stuff, he was interested in the new bands that were coming up under that, sort of the second generation of punk rock. Yeah. So he was, he told us, oh, I've got, I've got an album. He heard our John Peel session. He came down to Brighton and interviewed us for Sounds magazine. And he said to us, well, I'm thinking of putting an album together. It's going to be called Here Comes the New Punk. 
and it's going to be all the new bands like the exploited angelic upstarts um all the sort of bands that started they were influenced by the first wave and then started their own bands being influenced by punk itself that influenced them to start a band and then so that was what we thought the album was going to be about and then i think about two or three weeks before its release we suddenly saw it was called oi the album picture of a bloke sticking his fingers up on there we thought that was hilarious we were rolling about laughing thinking what a stupid title for an album how are you supposed to order it in the record shop you know oi what oi <laughs> oi yeah, yeah what do you want what record do you want oi yes we were laughing we thought this is so stupid and then obviously it got tagged with the skinhead thing because there was a few sort of boot boy out bands on there and uh, next thing there was loads of skinheads turning up at our gigs which we were a bit puzzled by um, so yeah, we actually sort of got sucked into that by accident and they soon disappeared when they saw we were just sort of a fun punk band that didn't mind really taking things seriously. We had no political leanings at that time. Just sort of kids fresh out of school wondering, you know, lucky to be doing it, um, you know, doing it. Yeah, that's it. So yeah, so we, yeah, we said yes to that. That's how we got involved in the oi thing. Yes. And then because that, you know, because like, with the 80s and, and suppose that period I didn't realize you know I sort of I didn't appreciate it at the time but there were kind of these gatekeepers that you had you know like the John Peel and then you had you know NME Sounds Melody Maker Record Mirror and you know this kind of network of gig uh, venues all over the country you know every place from Leicester to Leeds Glasgow you know Norwich you know all had a little sort of a, a place that people you know if someone who was a bit of a promoter and when you say promoter you know <laughs> probably a young kid just putting on a club night, you know, just went, oh, I've heard a band on John Peel, you know, we'll just kind of put them on on a Wednesday in, in Norwich. So it kind of helped bands kind of, I suppose, develop and, and, and sort of grow their base. So did you find that you got an audience and, and a sort of following quite quickly? Yeah, there was funny event. Yeah, I know you're from Norwich, but Norwich was always a good place for us. We always went to Norwich. And there were certain little towns, Norwich, Sheffield, Manchester, obviously, that's where punk sort of started at the same time as it did in London. Um, Brighton was quite good for getting bands on. There was quite a few independent promoters down here that would put on, you know, take a risk, put on the, you know, the Buzzcocks and the Banshees when they first started, you know, be 20 people there. Next day, next time they're playing the top rank, you know. Yeah. Um, so there was a few little towns like that around England that had a really good, like, punk rock alternative scene that would go out, you know, and we had it in Brighton. We'd all, you know, anyone that came down, we'd all go to it, whether we sort of liked the band or not. Yes, absolutely. And during that period, you obviously, I mean, there was a lot of things. There was like, you could claim unemployment and there was Job Seekers Allowance and Enterprise Allowance Schemes, which kind of gave people almost like a grant to be in a band. So that kind of helped. So with a lot of people, they were able just to really focus, keeping the, the, the sort of sound and releasing and just kind of getting in a transit van and going up north or south or whatever. Um, so that helped. But during the 80s, you were incredibly prolific, weren't you? you there, there was like almost a, an album release every every year throughout that whole decade, which was incredibly impressive. Yeah, I, yeah. it's funny you should mention the Enterprise Allowance game. I think we all went on it twice and you're only supposed to go on it once. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you used to get housing benefit, so you got your rent paid. You used to sign. Well, you still used to sign on and go on tour. You know, yes. we'd have to like say, you know, we'd have to if we were in London, we'd have to get the train down, sign on, and go back up and carry on the tour, or get the van to pick us up around the corner of the Dole office. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean that that gave you the ability to. I mean that would never happen today, but that no. gave you the ability ability to still live and still do your work, your art, your music. Um, you know, and so 
with the two, I mean, there wasn't a great deal of money in it, but still, like you said, be prolific. Still, you could still take time off and go in the studio. You didn't have to pay bands' wages or bands' rents or everything like that. You know, the government paid everything and you just um, went out and toured. Yes, Thatcher's Britain. Now, did you, I mean, because cause at the time, you know, you, you know, you had the mainstream charts with, you know, that Trevor Horn production sound, you know, like, Tina Turner, Dire Straits, and ABC, Frankie Goes Hollywood. Then you had the alternative scene and you had that indie scene as well. Did you ever sort of, were you any ever sort of part of any sort of particular group or gang of other bands or did you feel quite separate from everybody? Um, yeah, we felt quite separate because we were down on the south coast in Brighton. Um, obviously bands we toured with, we sort of became friends with, we became good friends with GBH from Birmingham and Exploited from Edinburgh. And um, there was sort of one sort of major punk band in each city that we sort of always saw at festivals. So I'd say that was our sort of people we hung out with. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Because I was just wondering, as, as, as you progress, and obviously this is quite a... Because there's a few people who just were really prolific. You know, most people are quite prolific in the first, you know, like period, the honeymoon years. And, but, but I noticed in the 80s, a lot of people did just bring out an album a year. And, um, and you were almost like in that, in that sort of category as well. Did you, how were you coping as a band? Because you were a four-piece in those days, and obviously you and Peter have been together ever since. So how, were you, how was the dynamic within within the group because obviously you're having to make lots of decisions and being people a creating things and also sometimes people getting a bit tired or just taking too many drugs so how, how did how did the band sort of cope with those kind of pressures um i think i think up until about i think we had a, we had a solid lineup with trapper and ox and um you know, they were almost all full time, really. I mean, I think we did other sort of part, they, other sort of part time jobs to keep us going. But I think up until they left, which was about '96, uh, that was sort of uh, so they were in it for about sort of '77 to '96, about sort of 20 years, 18 years. I think, yeah, we were quite solid, and uh, I think um, we all sort of had our jobs. You know, Trap sort of used to do the tour management. I produced the records. And um, Oxford Drummer would do all the driving and look after the van. So we sort of run it like a business, really. Um, so I think that's what sort of kept it going, really. I, I don't... Uh, obviously, there was fights along the way <laughs> and um, lots of drunken nights where everyone fell out. But that was all part of it, I think. That was, yes. That's, that's all part of growing up together, isn't it? And how did you cope? Because obviously you were on a lot of different record labels. <laughs> sort of, and, and there's that whole world of you know, labels and publishing. Did you manage to navigate those waters okay? Or was that a bit of a, looking back on it, a bit of a nightmare? Well, I think like you said at the beginning of the interview, we never sort of really planned anything. We sort of like how we started with the John Peel thing. We just sort of one thing happens and the next thing happens, another door opens. We walk through that one and another door opens. Just sort of stumbled into the future, really. And I, and that happened with all of the labels and the the albums, the record companies and stuff. You know, if we'd just done an album with them and we fell out with them or or they didn't they didn't want to give us a certain amount of money to do the next record, we'd say, all right, then, well, that's the end of that one. Then we'd all sit around and do nothing for a while, and then someone would come up with another offer and say, oh, these people are offering, let's, well, let's try them out. And then, you know, you just 
do whatever naturally came next, you know. Yes. We never sat down and had a you know, big blackboard up with a plan, you know. <laughs> this is what we're gonna this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this type of music, we're gonna yes. sign to this type of label, we're gonna leave that label and go there. And then if that doesn't work, we're gonna try this. It was just almost like, you know, well I'm up for it, let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, just stumble forward into the future, which is what we're still doing now, I suppose. Yes, because because the band has never, a you've never had a break, have you? And 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 you have literally just continually. There hadn't been that many big breaks with recording albums or releasing albums at all. Because the other thing that often happened with a lot of bands, especially as an example from the eighties, I mean, there was like eighty seven, eighty eight. A lot of the bands that I really liked by then were getting a bit tired and then there was ecstasy had appeared and then everybody was, not everyone, but a lot of bands, uh, I suppose the scene had changed and there, there was that world that everyone wanted to dance, you know, the, the kind of, even the alternative press were into that kind of world that was the Happy Mondays and Soup Dragons and Primal Scream and Stone Roses and that kind of, you know, there were quite a lot of bands just said, well, you know, we brought an album out and just no one was interested and, and only you know, like a year or two before that, they were sort of quite major people on top of the pops, you know, and everything was going really well. So they were like, fuck it, we're just going to give up now because we're just, we're tired and no one cares about us. So you managed to navigate the kind of, the world that is kind of fashion, the musical fashions of the time, didn't you? Yeah, I guess, thinking as you were speaking then, it's probably because we never really got off the bottom rung, really. We never really had, we never got... I suppose if we'd have got into the charts and um, started selling a lot of records, we'd have probably would have had all the problems with drugs and and people, you know, thinking that they're bigger than the band and stuff like that. So we always always stayed quite low. Um, so I think that's what sort of kept us going. We were always like underground, underneath, and yes. um, punching and, up, as they say. Yeah, punching punching up from the bottom. If we were on the bottom, we'd have probably been, people probably would have been dead by now. <laughs> if we were at the top, I mean, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just He'd have been lording it up in LA until he had a heart attack. <laughs> I know, blimey. Yes, that's always... And how did you... I mean, because one thing that sort of most people... And I always remember Lemmy from Motorhead, you know, like they had lots of kind of like periods of nobody being interested, but the kind of European market and especially the German market kind of kept them going. Did you sort of tour Europe quite a lot? Well, that was what I was going to say um, to answer to the last question, because that really was what kept us going. But um, I think our second album, which was really our first album, because it was the first studio album. I told you the first album was a live album. Second album was our first studio album, uh, South American Frogs. That did really well in um it was actually went out on a German label, and I think it was number one in the alternative chart then. And like also you were saying about you know bands suddenly, they're all, they're the, the flavour of the month in England, they're in front of NME, Melody Maker Sounds, and then the difficult second album comes, and then suddenly they're out of flavour and something else is, you know, the flavour of the month. Yes. But what happens in Germany, I've noticed for sure, once, once they buy your album and like your records, they like you forever. So we've been... We've been touring Germany since 1983, mostly the same venues every Christmas, and it's always eight, nine hundred people. Most most gigs, Berlin's always sold out, Hamburg and uh, Frankfurt's always sold out. Like every single year, I think we missed one year since 1983, and we can go back there and people still want to hear the songs from that album. Yes. So I mean, that's the thing. I think it's it's quite the same in America as well. If you have a hit in America people will come and watch you because they want to hear that song. Yes. Whereas I would say in the UK, it's a bit more, oh, not them. They, I thought they died, I thought they split up years ago, <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Yes. Well, it's kind of, so yeah, because it's that thing. Because um, there were two people who were doing, you know, who were trying to keep the music, their band together, Godf- the Godfathers, and also Fish, who, you know, is a solo artist now. But he was saying that it's really hard because you have to, you have to kind of book 30, 30 gigs in 30 days and do Europe, and that will just about keep you and everybody else going for that kind of next, basically, 11 months if you want to keep the band and keep it all operational. So do you have a similar ethos when it comes to, um, yeah, keeping things? Yeah, I, yeah I, I would agree with Fish there, because basically what you do, what we do at Christmas is we do like 50, uh, 10 to 15 shows before Christmas, a few of them sold out, and that basically pays for Christmas. And most of January as well, because January the music business is really quiet. Yes. And so, yeah, that, that will pay for Christmas. And then we do like Rebellion Festival in the summer uh, and a few other punk festivals. We do those every year. Uh, and that pays for summer holidays. So, you know, twice a year that keeps us going, yeah. Yeah. And your timing, you know, I mean, it's not great because of what's happening at this moment, but at least you managed to do Christmas and not... And weren't waiting, because quite a lot of people I spoke to were just like, God, our whole year was planned for the sort of summer festivals. You know, they've been recording. And I know you've just got an album out yourself, haven't you, as well? Yeah. Which is tricky. Because the other thing that people mention about the German market, just to go back to that, is that you love merchandising and buying at least three copies of every CD, one for themselves and for their friends, and which is kind of just keeps everyone happy. So hurrah. Yeah, we do well on merch at Christmas as well. You know, as long as we keep the fresh designs fresh, keep bringing new stuff every year, people keep buying it. Which, so, yes. that's good as well. So you're, um, so yeah, so I was just going to say, you've got a new album that is out, which I was listening to earlier today, as you do. So it's still, yeah. so you've got a female vocalist on it, haven't you? Yeah, it's a friend of ours from uh, Brighton, yeah. He says, Lynn, yeah. Lynn. yeah. I should have known that because, frankly, there's a song called Wanker on it and um, I thought yeah, that, that yeah. is not a man singing that song. Yeah, we like to keep the albums very... We always have, actually. If you listen to any of our old albums, there's always a sort of a weird track on there, like guest singer or, you know, sort of a, you know, we'd like to bring a bit of brass in sometimes. And, break, you know, I don't like an album of, like, 16 songs where it's just guitar, bass and someone shouting. So... Um, you know, to, you know like, we like to break the albums up a little bit and put something a bit different on, you know, yes. different tracks in there, yeah. Because it, it starts almost with a bit of a conceptual beginning, you know, which I was like, oh, this is interesting. But it, then I realised it only lasts 25 seconds. So obviously you had, a, <laughs> you had a lot of fun with this one and then you had, you know, the classic Facebook loser. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Yes. So what was it like when you had the... When did the actual album hit the streets, so to speak? Well, we were quite lucky going back to Germany again. We um, we played the album launch party in Berlin on the eighth of March, and that was we got we were came back from that a couple of days later, and that was like almost the last flights, European flights. That's the the, the a lot of people didn't turn up to the gig because they were scared of the virus, yes. and it was just being talked about now. But there wasn't any sort of lockdowns in place, or and everything was flying as normal. Everyone was at, so we were lucky. We just got the album out in time. The album came out on March the sixth. And uh, everyone had pre-ordered it online anyway. So just after the album came out, that's when the lockdown kicked in. Yes. Uh, to, to be honest, we didn't have a lot of stuff booked really this year. We were sort of waiting for it to kick in after the album. So obviously we've been quiet up until now. But, I mean, we're not big tourers anyway, really. We were sort of too old to sit in a van for six weeks. So most of our stuff now is sort of fly in, fly out. We'll fly into Germany, do three gigs, fly into 
you know, Austria and do a couple of gigs. So we've just been to South America, played a festival there. Um, so we don't, yeah, we don't really do loads and loads of gigs. Mostly it's fly out and use, you know, use higher equipment and fly back again, get picked up at the airport and go home. Nice. One. It's, mm. it's what happens when you get older, isn't it, really? Fish said that. Well, yeah. Fish yeah. said the one thing he has to have now is a very good mattress because his back would just be completely screwed after two nights on a bad, you know, cramped up yeah. because he's, I think yeah. he's quite tall. So what happened? Look, just, I mean, everyone must ask you this. 2017, you were going into So were you quite big in America at this? Well, not big, but, you know, were you, did you have quite a good following? Is this when Peter wasn't allowed in? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um we played punk rock bowling a couple of years before. Oh, that was that Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah Las Vegas. Yeah, oh, that's my. a big punk punk festival like Rebellion, but it's yes. in the desert. Yeah, because I've often been, um, I've been often gone to Vegas in May and been like, why are there all these punks with all these kind of British obscure British band? And then suddenly went, oh my god, two weeks time, there's a massive kind of punk festival with every band playing. You know, it's quite. So, yeah. what's that festival like to play in? That's fantastic. Yeah. It's like, you know, Las Vegas is surreal anyway, but it's even more surreal when you open your curtains at your hotel. And uh, We actually played at a punk rock pool party. Nice. It's like you you open your curtains at your hotel and there's like punk punks in the pool and big speakers, music playing. Nice. Uh, yeah. What and the people what, that, sorry. I was going to say, what hotel did you stay in? Uh, the Fremont. Fremont. Yeah, Fremont Street. Yes. And we stayed in the Golden Nugget the night of the gig, but the, the promoters would only pay for one night in the sort of flash hotel three months a bit more probably three months a bit more downtown las vegas yes and circus circus you could get for about 30 dollars for sort of a week i think yeah i've heard of that one yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. but anyway so yeah back to the peter not getting in thing um so yeah so yeah we played there that was good and uh america's hit or miss really i mean we've toured america we've done the six weeks in the van when we were younger you know and it's good good when you get to new york you make some money and then you sort of go around the Midwest, you lose it all. And then you <laughs> go get to Chicago, make some more money again in Detroit. Then you go back out to the East, the West Coast. Uh, you lose all your money getting across there through the Midwest. And then when you get back to LA, you make some money again. So you never actually make any money touring America. It's too big and it's too long and there's too many cities. So the only thing we really do is fly in and fly out of festivals. Yeah. And that was, that was a festival we were playing in Orange County at the Observatory. So, yeah, so we all... Obviously, we can't afford um, proper work visas for America. They're about £1,000 each, $1,500. So, I mean, you know, we were only getting about three or 4000 for the festival anyway. So if we'd have bought that, we'd have lost... If we'd have all had to buy work visas, we'd have lost money. Yes. So we all decided... Well, like we always done when we toured America, just to go in on holiday visas separately through separate airports. Yeah. So, so it's not like four guys walking through with guitars, you know. <laughs> Are you guys in a band? <laughs> so... um. <laughs> So, yeah, so I was already over there um, with my wife and um, Nick and Sam, the bass player and drummer, uh, bass player, current bass player and drummer, they went in via San Francisco. I went in via Texas. Pia was the last over. He was only staying for two days. So he was coming in, playing the festival and flying back. So that sort of aroused suspicions. But um, nobody will really ever know what went on between Peter and the immigration officers. But um, he might have got... You know, a bit too drunk on the free transatlantic alcohol. Um, anyway, they he aroused suspicion, and they took him into an office and they Googled him. Because I know U.S. immigrations use Google a lot now, but, um, and they they saw some gigs of him uh, 
on tour in Germany. When we, every time we tour Germany at Christmas, we have like a, a theme. Yeah. And one year, we, it, was, it was the presidential election the year before, Trump versus Clinton. So that was our theme. So Peter went on stage dressed as Trump, and that came up on the screen. Um, I mean, that wasn't the reason they didn't let him in the country. But, I mean, a lot of newspapers picked up on it and said and made it into a story. Like, singer, kick, punk singer kicked out of US for impersonating Trump. Right. Much better much better headline than having a singer kicked out for having wrong visa. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so Peter never actually said that he was kicked out for impersonating Trump. But that's what they found on the computer when they Googled him. And then, uh, you know, the, the press put the two together and made it into a story it actually made the bbc news right which so, is quite good because we ended up we getting 250,000 hits on the footage of us playing in germany so oh nice well yes yeah, so yeah. It, it it was kind of to do with the work visa because actually i yeah i know i've had a few friends who've who've just gone to conferences you know and and all you know they weren't getting paid, but they were just going to a conference and then they kind of like, right, that's it. You, you know, we think you're working. And it's like, no, 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 I'm just going, I'm giving a talk at this conference. I'm really not going to get paid. And it's like, then it's just like horrendous hell because you just... Yeah, like, you actually have to prove that you're not being paid. Yeah. And that kind of required the person having to phone the organiser to sort of speak to the, you know, the customs people and say, no, she really isn't going to get paid, but you know, could you could you let her out? And she was like, Christ almighty, I'm never doing this again, you know. So it's quite heavy, really. It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's, you, have it, to be, you have to be really careful if you haven't got the right visa. And then getting the right visa is so much hassle as well. You have to actually go up to the American embassy and get in a queue and be interviewed and prove that you can earn this much and yeah. you're going to use American people in your crew and uh, you're going to create work for US citizens by actually doing the tour, you know, and then you might get a tick if you're lucky at the end of it. Mm, I know. Um, I think most people have kind of given up with America a bit trying to tour because it's like just. So well, much... I think Peter has since he didn't get in, he's just had enough of it, really. Yes. I was ashamed because uh, the Las Vegas thing sounded, you know, did seem really good. And and it was just always like our timing was like, it was always, oh, we're going to leave on the Wednesday and the, and the festival's coming up this weekend. It would have been, we hadn't timed yeah. it like that, but it was... Um, it was I think they've, re, they've rescheduled it for next May now. Yeah. But, um, but they, it didn't happen this year because of the virus. I know, nothing happened in Vegas. So look, just lastly, what would you, you know, because you've amazing career. I mean, there's only a few people like you, because most people just give up after five years and have had enough and then occasionally come back to music. But you've stuck with it. You're one of those... Like Lemmy, David Bowie, you've done it, haven't you? You just said... But you've done other things as well. I guess all the band have done other work. But, I mean, what would you say to a, an 18-year-old... If you could have said something to yourself when you were starting out, what would it be? Well, I mean, I always say when people say, how, ask that question, how come you've kept going and not split and, you know, not finished and not given up? And I said, we were just too lazy to phone each other and up and split up. <laughs> 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 too lazy to split up yes <laughs> that's going to be our epitaph yeah, yeah. and is it the <laughs> I case don't know what, I, don't know what, I don't know what I'd say to an 18 year old because I never sort of had a plan myself really no so I don't know what to do really I I sort of do a bit of tour managing and stuff or I used to I don't do so much now but I always feel sorry for bands because they put so much effort into it you know they'd be rehearsing every, you know seven days a week in a sweaty basement and they'd be trying this talking about it all day really getting excited and all they'd face was one disappointment after another you know what i mean getting to a gig and no one's there doing a support tour and you know nobody being actually in the arena when they're playing and 
And uh, I just used to feel sorry for them and just thought, how the hell did I keep going? What did I, what was my secret? How did I do it? You know, I just, I, I suppose just the plan was not to have a plan, really. Yes. And was it always the case? I mean, was Peter, was that relationship with the two of you, has that always been absolutely essential? Like, you know, Lennon, McCartney, Jagger, Richards, and people like that? I suppose it was in the in the early days, but now, you know, we're not really we don't really hang out together off when we're not on tour. We um he goes to his house and hangs out with his friends and has his life and I go to my house and hang out with my friends and have my life. We'll see you at the airport next time. Yes. We never we never rehearse or anything unless we've got to write a song. And even the last album I wrote most of the songs at home on my own and um Peter came and learnt then we had a re- we had one rehearsal where he learnt all the lyrics and we went and recorded it. Which is probably good time management, really, isn't it? I guess it's like that thing. But I, was just, I did notice that Spotify, you have 34,000 li- monthly listeners, which you must feel quite chuffed with that, even though that probably doesn't equate to that much money. No, well, I didn't know that figure, but um, I think Spotify, if you get a tenth of a penny per track or something. <laughs> something like that. But, but 34,000 listeners is probably about £6.80. Yes, £6.80. <laughs> yeah, don't, 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 um, yes. Don't go and buy a car. But, yeah, but that's that's fantastic kind of monthly listening, you know, figures. Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a punk revival every sort of couple of years. Well, you always know, you can tell by your royalty check if there's been a punk revival or not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, OK. Yeah. No, I was just going to say, yeah, lastly, because there's these... um. Yeah, festivals, and you're obviously bumping into people that you, you you know think, well, I've heard of them, but I might not have spoke to them. Do you, is there a case that you, you've sort of, because you've all become slight survivors of, of the world that is kind of rock, pop and punk, do you, um, yeah, do you, do you sort of feel a certain kinship with each other? I suppose, I suppose, yeah, the old, the old originals, if that's what you mean, like us, GBH, Exploited, the upstarts, UK subs, all those sort of bands that have just been going, kept on going through. Yeah, you know, we're sort of old chums now. It's really good to see each other. Yeah, old boys reunion, old boys reunion. Yeah, but um, I think uh, we all, I could speak for all those bands. We realised, you know, how good it was and how much the fans appreciate the music. That it just, we just, you know, just kept us going over the years. We probably were too old to become plumbers as well. Yes, you need you need you need quite good. You you need good knees and backs. You need kind of supple bodies for those kind of jobs. You know they're not that easy, are they? Anything you have to kneel down for is is out the question now, the picture now. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, because and do you find that you're because you were saying about you know you get these kind of revivals and I noticed that twenty years or twenty five years seems to be this kind of period of time that suddenly people start looking back and wait a minute, this is fantastic stuff. Well, let's write a book about it or let's document it or put it in a museum or, or have an exhibition. Have you sort of seen little kind of waves over those kind of decades where you just think, oh, right, you know, something's, something's happening here because suddenly the royalty check's bigger, the, the hits on Spotify, suddenly there's a younger audience, you know, you know, when you look out, you think, oh, actually, they're not all old chaps anymore. They're, there's some young kids here. So have you, have you picked up on that as well? Yeah, I picked up on that. I mean, you had 30 years of punk, 40 years of punk. Uh, next year, it's 25 years of Rebellion Festival. So there's always little anniversary. 
But I think also what happened was uh, when sort of American picked, America picked up punk and sort of made it quite poppy with Green Day and Offspring, yes. stuff like that. A lot, of, a lot of kids that are into that sort of when they were 14, 15, when they got a bit older, they thought, well, where does this music come from? You know, it's a bit like reggae. You know, you've heard, you, you know, you listen to Bob Marley. You say, right, where, where did, where's, where's the roots for this? And you go back and you hear some 60s Jamaican artists. So I think it's a bit like the same with punk as well. They, you know, you're into the Green Day stuff, and then you go back through the back catalogues, and you find us and the UK Subs and Stiff Little Fingers and all the original sort of bands. And um, you know that that causes a spike in in sales and interest in in sort of the bands from our generation. Yes, I uh, could imagine, actually. Yes. But anyway, look, well, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this interview. And You're when, welcome. And yeah. when I put it out, I'll send you a link, and then you can always use it if you want elsewhere. Yeah. But that's yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll FB message you um, my email address. Oh, yes, that's fantastic. Yeah. And do you yeah. go as Derek or Dell? Uh, Dell. Well, my full name is Dell, but I always put on the album Strange Fish, which mm. is... Uh, S-T-R-A-N-G-E-F-I-S-H, Del Strangefish. That's what sort of my stupid stage name really. Um, but was, was the line chair enough for you? Yeah, no, it's fantastic. That was really good. Yeah. But thank you ever so much. Yeah. This has been great. And um, yes, you can... Uh, All right, David. Yeah, well, take care. And it's been brilliant. Thank you ever so much for your yeah. time. Okay. okay, okay, mate. I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, yeah take care. Thanks a yeah. lot. Bye-bye. Okay, good luck. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. There you go, how to say goodbye in a very concise and sharp way, or not. Anyway, big thank you to Dale, Derek, uh, Strange Fish from Peter and the Test Two Babies. So appreciate the time. Um, anyway, this has been David Esau, the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do at C86 Show. I am there, keep it nice and positive. Otherwise, why would you bother? Um, and also, all these shows have been archived, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Yes, Podbean. What is that? I hear you say. I don't know. Anyway, C86 show, lots of chats. I know, some of it quality, some of it just beautiful. Anyway, stay safe. Have a great week.